Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Ashman Family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Ashman Family JCC empowers you to experience Jewish paths toward a life of joy, purpose, and meaning through innovative Jewish learning and wellness programs, community building, and initiatives to develop the next generation of Jewish leaders. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 327, The Myth of the Twelve Tribes of Israel. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofberg. Our guest today, Andrew Tabulowski, is the author of a book called The Myth of the Twelve Tribes of Israel, New Identities Across Time and Space. The story of the Ten Lost Tribes traces to the two kingdoms, the Northern Kingdom of Israel and the Southern Kingdom of Judah, that are described in the Bible. In the year 722 BCE or so, the Northern Kingdom, called Israel, was destroyed by the Assyrians. And the story goes that the Assyrians exiled the population of the Northern Kingdom of Israel, which was made up of ten of the twelve tribes. The story of the Ten Lost Tribes has been an enduring story in the history of Judaism and in the history of many other peoples who have stories that they themselves descend from the Ten Lost Tribes of Israel. Some of those are communities that we identify now as Jewish, like the Beta Israel of Ethiopia, and some of them are communities that we definitely don't identify as Jewish, such as the Mormons of America. The book, The Myth of the Twelve Tribes of Israel, is the first book to explore the traditions of peoples all around the world who have claimed an Israelite identity as part of a continuous history of Israelite identity construction from biblical times to the present. Andrew Tabulowski sees a connection between the way that Israel itself, or Judah itself, built up its identity in relationship to the question of the Ten Tribes, with the way that later groups also built their identity out of this story of the Ten Tribes. A few words about our guest today. Andrew Tabulowski is an assistant professor of religious studies at the College of William and Mary. He is an expert on the Twelve Tribes tradition and on Israelite history, and he's the author of a book called The Sons of Jacob and the Sons of Heracles. Andrew Tabulowski has a PhD from Brown University, and fun fact, he was the TA for a class on Greek mythology that Lex took as an undergrad. He gave Lex a mixture of good and not-so-good grades on his assignments. Before teaching at William & Mary, Andrew Tabulowski has also taught at Georgetown and Wheaton College. So, Andrew Tabulowski, welcome to Judaism Unbound. It's so great to have you. Very glad to be here. Thanks for having me on board. So can we start by just giving us a little bit of background about what's the basic story of the 12 tribes or the 10 tribes? And specifically, what was it that motivated you to write this book? Like, what is the myth in the sense of wrong idea that you think people right. have that you are presenting them the myth of the right idea, you know, <laughs> to sort of correct what they think? Yeah, yeah. so... Um... The 12 tribes of Israel are the centerpiece of a biblical vision of who Israel is and what happens to them from Genesis to two kings. The 12 tribes of Israel are everything. But there are also lots of traditions that come out of a biblical chapter, 2 Kings 17. 
which describes the conquest of the kingdom of Israel. At the time, there were two kingdoms, Israel and Judah. And supposedly all the tribes that were in the kingdom of Israel were taken away into Assyrian exile, from which they never returned. So that's where the legend of the 10 out of the 12 lost tribes of Israel comes from. And there's just stories all over the world that are about where these tribes went and what happened to them. But the biblical vision of the 12 tribes of Israel and these other tribal stories never get studied together in a serious way because they're sort of the province of very different people. We leave the biblical ones to biblical scholars. Well, other people, for other reasons, medieval historians, things like that, will talk about these 10 lost tribes. But a lot has changed in how we think about biblical traditions since this divide between these two types of things showed up. And one of them is that we now recognize how important it is that the biblical traditions themselves were written not in early Israel, but in relatively late Judah. So they're already written by people who are looking back on a history, sort of in a different place, sort of in a context where most of the, some of the tribes at least already didn't exist. And the other thing is that the way that we think about identity these days is we think that people are sort of always reinventing their identity. So what that means is it really diminishes the importance of the distinction between the biblical construction of who Israel is and its history and any other one. Because everybody is looking back. Everybody is using the same 12 tribes of Israel. They never invent a 13th or 14th tribe. They never tell the story that differently. And there are people all over the world today who identify as Israel. There have been for thousands of years. There are people who identify others as Israel. And my intuition is that there is a sense, at least, in which biblical and extra-biblical authors who are constructing visions of Israel identity uh, and Israelite history are doing really the same thing as each other. And there wasn't a book like that. So I uh, wrote a book that was about what people from biblical times to the present do with essentially the same tradition as far as these constructions. And what we can learn if we just put them, a bunch of them, because there's way too many for one book, but if we put, in this case, five case studies next to each other, what might we learn? So I want to poke more at the separation you described between, I don't know if the word is fields or disciplines. Yeah. Uh, you're, you're straddling a bunch of interesting, I don't know, fields or eras in this book. And I actually, I wanted to ask something that struck me really deeply because, you know, I both Dan and I are very interested in how people approach both the Bible and like, for lack of a better term, biblical history. And what is not common at all. I mean, you said this already, but just to reinforce it, it really is not a thing to, on one page, be looking at, you know, the 6th century BCE, and then the next page, or maybe the next chapter, looking a thousand years after that, or in your case, 2,500 years after that. I mean, you have more different centuries <laughs> that are cited than I think any book I've ever read from like 3,000-ish years ago all the way till like our current century. And you go into many of those centuries in depth. And that's, I don't know if ambitious is the right word or at the very least like hard. And yeah. it also goes against like how the academy is set up. Like people, I swear I have like a drinking game when I'm talking to scholars where I'll ask them a question and they'll say, oh, I don't really study that period. Yep. Right. Um, and periods are defined very specifically. Like sometimes a decade is a period or sometimes, you know, maybe a century or a few centuries. But like if you ask somebody who studies the Bible to talk about something medieval, they'll tell you, go down the hallway to a different teacher most of the time. And yep. you're very much doing something different. So I'd love to hear like more about the separation that you're diagnosing and also why why it's important to sort of take it on through a book like yours. 
Yeah, I mean, it's um, when you are a scholar, I think you get a sense of what expertise is. It's narrow. You know, your average PhD program in America, I think, takes something like eight years. Uh, that includes programs where, you know, the funding isn't so good. So people have to work while they're doing it and it includes one where the funding is good. So you get to it more quickly. So most people who are sort of in my orbit took six or seven years. So if you think, you know, of expertise as studying something for six and seven years, you can understand why people are nervous about stepping into something that someone else has studied for six or seven years, but you haven't. So it was very daunting. And I had this idea and I was sure that it would be useful if I could do it to just, so the phenomenon I describe, I call becoming Israel. And I'm saying the Judahites are becoming Israel, not necessarily in the sense that they are inventing themselves as Israel, but maybe that's also a possibility some people are talking about, but at any rate, because of how we think of identity, they are becoming a new vision of Israel based on old traditions. And so is everybody else that I talk about. But then it was like, you know, I get to chapter two, I got to talk about the Samaritans. And then chapter three is about all these medieval legends. And chapter four is about the Mormons. And chapter five is about the Beta Israel. And I started out knowing very little. So even thinking about what the case study should be was very daunting. But writing about long periods of time and thinking about long periods of time is something that I am I'm really interested in. And so I've said that for me, this book was a process of sort of working my way out of a kind of grad school framework back towards the kind of scholar that I want to be. I don't know what people will make of it. Yeah, maybe uh, scholars of the Beta Israel or the Mormons will say that I you know, got everything wrong. Um, it's always a possibility. But for the moment, at least, I am proud that uh, I took the risk of trying to look across all that. Because not only does that give you more of a sense of why these traditions matter, they're still around today and still doing the same things today. But you also see, I think of it as like uh, costume makers. They have the same materials for a costume, but they're making a whole bunch of different ones. So one thing is, can we see all of the things that this costume can become? You know, what can we learn about that? And how does that help us see what any individual tailor is doing? But the other thing is ideas about Israel change dramatically over time. There's a modern dress. There's a medieval dress, just as in other forms of fashion. You know, the idea of Israel's return coinciding with the apocalypse, the end of the world, is in the Hebrew Bible, but it became much more important in medieval Christian circles than it was previously. So now a lot of Israels are sort of apocalyptic Israels, and you can't see that unless you take the long view. I'll put out my understanding of the basic thesis of the book, and then I'd love for you to correct it. You know, I mean, I, I think that the way that I read it there, and at least there are other examples that you give, but I mean, thinking about two, the Mormons and the Beta Israel, which are the Ethiopian Jews, that the Mormons claimed that the Native Americans were descended from the tribe of Menashe, and the Beta Israel believe that they're descended from the tribe of Dan. And a lot of people say, oh, well, they're not really, and that's not a true story. And if I understood correctly, at least your initial entrance into that debate is to say, well, wait a second, it's not even so clear that Israel is Israel or that, that Judah is Israel. Can you talk a little bit about back to the the early, you know, the early stuff in, in your book where you're really raising this question about whether the Judeans or the Judahites, the people who ultimately became the Jews, that they themselves may have basically done what the Mormons ended up doing, which is constructing an identity that they were part of Israel, even though from a factual standpoint, they were not? Yeah, for sure. So that's, that's a great question. 
the that's my first book is about the possibility that the Judites appropriated for themselves an Israelite identity, which is not my idea. It started circulating originally in the 90s, and there's a lot of reasons that it exists. So, for example, we know that the oldest tribal list in the Hebrew Bible, the one almost everybody thinks is the oldest, Judges 5, does not actually include the tribes of Judah. We know that most tribal lists and the 12 tribe lists and descriptions in the Hebrew Bible are written by Judahites in a relatively late period. And so if you had to prove that Judahites always thought of themselves as Israelites, you'd have a hard time doing it. So I do think they might have appropriated and invented an Israelite identity in the exact same way that these other groups did. But I also tried to uh, not make that a central point um, outside of the introduction where I discuss it. The real issue is how we all now think about identity, because there's an intuitive way we all think of identity. You think of identity essentially as biology. You are a Jew because your ancestors were a Jew, were Jews. You are, you know, Russian because your ancestors are Russian or, or whatever. But as near as scientists and people who study ethnicity can tell, there is no biological basis for ethnicity and identity. There obviously is a sense in which you inherit it from your ancestors because they're, your literal ancestors are the ones who sort of tell you what you're identity is. But there's also a sense in which it can change. So you can, it's very easy to think about this, where, you know, somebody thinks of themselves as French, they travel to America, they settle there three or four generations later, those people don't necessarily think of themselves as French anymore. They might think of themselves as French-American, they might think about themselves as just American. Or, in an example I often use, if you think about the American Revolution, um, there was a time in, the, the, in, even in the biblical history, when the united monarchy that was ruled by David and Solomon split into two kingdoms, Judah and Israel. And the idea that the book presents is that they both thought of themselves as Israel from before that happened. They continued doing it for centuries thereafter. They continued doing it for after Israel was conquered by the Assyrians and, and no longer existed as a kingdom. But if after the American Revolution, Americans kept thinking themselves as British, we can understand why that would happen, because the same things would be true. You would all, it's essentially the have, same. Right, like what I hear you saying is they, they totally could have, right? They could have, exactly. They could, they had the same language, uh, same religious stuff, same, you know, all kinds of the same things that Judah and Israel had as well, because they didn't. That's how we can see that identity is not necessarily a choice, but it is something you can reinvent at all times. So regardless of whether the Judahites are biologically descended from early Israelites or not, it certainly could have happened that they would have developed their own Judahite identity that was not an Israelite identity anymore. And it certainly is the case that they invent their own version of Israelite identity. They're not doing anything different, I think, than, than the Mormons are doing when they discover their Israelite identity or the Beit Israel. And I think that historically, if you really wanted to try to prove who was biologically descended from the Israelites, the only ones you'd have proof for are probably maybe the Judites, depending on which side of this question you end up on, and the Samaritans. And that's part of what's interesting, because the Samaritans, even though they are bi biologically descended from the Israelites, do construct a different version of Israelite identity from the Judites, which proves the point. Just because you're biologically descended from somebody doesn't mean you don't become Israel, in the sense that he is in the book, they're all becoming Israel, so we can discuss them all together. I love how you're comparing that to the revolution, and I think I, that part of your book, that quick mention of, huh, we could think about the American Revolution in this way, and if we still identified as British, it really got me rolling on a bunch of things, and so I was thinking, like, you know, there are people in Northern Ireland. I mean, I watch interviews with the golfer Rory McIlroy, who's from Northern Ireland, and he. He calls himself Irish. He doesn't say Northern Irish. He says, right. I'm Irish. Um, and so that's an example where like people, there, there are actually like geographic and political distinctions 
it's clear that what you're describing is true. Um, I also live in the 13th colony of the 13, which I was thinking, oh, shoot, like if we hadn't been the 13th, there could have been 12 colonies. And then the connection of 12 tribes, to 12 colonies, like that would be so easy. Go. We've even got a war between North and South in yep. our own American history that could be tied to the Judah in Israel, Southern and Northern. Like there was so much, but dang Rhode Island, we had to be the 13th. And I, I guarantee you that that, that would have happened. You know, that there, I mean, there already are some of these stories about America and Israel. Since basically the time Columbus showed up, there are stories about America and the 12 tribes. Nice. Yeah. So. And, and, and look, the, the, the pieces that you went into in your fourth chapter about Mormonism also, also tied to that. But the, the question I have is um, just to get into like, okay, so we, you, what you've identified so far is that there is, I don't know, there's like a similar muscle being flexed by different groups across a ton of different eras of time and all around the world. So already the this is another argument of yours where I'm thinking like, wow, that's like a tough argument to make in academic circles. Like I sometimes hear the word transhistorical, which is to say <laughs> arguments across all history, which in a sense you're you're making. I, I sometimes hear it as like a slur. In academic circles, like, yeah. oh, my God, like you're trying to make a really simplistic argument about how the same thing has happened over and over for all of eternity. And you've got professors who joke that, like, all their undergrads papers begin with since the dawn of time. That's right. yeah. um, and, and it's like the worst thing you can say in certain academic circles. And there's a way in which you're saying it, but you're, you're not saying it in the way that some might. And so I wanted to ask more about this, like, given that people are flexing a similar muscle across all these eras. So Samaritans for a few thousand years, Mormons for a few hundred years. What are they like what are they doing in a little right. more detail? And to to really get to the juicy part of your book, why? Like what is it about this 12 tribes story, how it's structured that allows for so many people to do this? So I yeah, I think um flexing the same muscle is a great way to put it. And and one thing that is really important here my first book, which was for much more of a narrow academic audience, was about biblical genealogical traditions and ancient Greek genealogical traditions. And the thing is that there are two kinds of genealogical traditions. There's linear genealogies. So it's like so-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so. You're familiar with that from the Bible, I'm sure. And then there are what we call segmented genealogies, which are basically sort of written family trees or verbal family trees. They follow multiple lines of descent at once. These segmented genealogies, of which the 12 tribes is one, because it's Jacob and his 12 sons and their descendants. There are certain things that segmented genealogies can do that you have to understand to understand when people are describing identity through segmented genealogical traditions. So you can think of Genesis, where, you know, for a while it's important that Reuben is the eldest son. And then what happens in Genesis 37 through 50 is it turns out to be important that Joseph, even though he's the youngest son, is one of Rachel's children, Joseph and Benjamin, and they're Jacob's favorite in that book. And what a segmented genealogical framework does is it gives you these options for interpretation where you can say, all right, this guy's the oldest son. That means this is the most important person. But you can also say, like, actually, the youngest son is most beloved. And then you kind of change the meaning what you're doing is just reimagining Israelite identity itself with different emphases. So you're saying, for example, that here's the data of the 12 tribes of Israel, your 12 sons. Who's the most important? Well, you can tell a story that tells you that Judah is the most important. 
because Judah is in Genesis 49, the most prized and so on and so forth. Or you could tell the story in a way where Joseph or Benjamin is the most favored, or you can tell a story in a way as uh, the Samaritans do where Ephraim is the most favored. That also happens in Mormon traditions. The data, because it is collected in a system, is available for people to make all kinds of stories out of it. The 12 tribes tradition has these trailing edges that people are just grabbing onto. And so we actually have one of the reasons that I'm trying to avoid the, you know, since the dawn of time problem is that this is really a unique phenomenon because these people are all literally claiming the same identity. There are 12 keys into the structure of ancient Israelite identity. Actually, there are 14 because there are 14 different tribes that are listed as the 12 tribes of Israel at one point or another in the Hebrew Bible, including uh, Joseph and Levi and Ephraim and Manasseh. So there are 14 options to claim to be Israel. When you claim to be Israel, you become the heir to the Bible's favorite people. But the segmented structure of the genealogy also means that you can tell a story about what happened to part of Israel that is totally different from any other story, but it's still a part of Israel. So you can say Manasseh crossed the Atlantic, came to America, became the Native American tribes, like the Book of Mormon does. Or you can say that the tribe of Dan left Israel in the days of Jeroboam and Rehoboam. They didn't want to be part of this civil war that was happening between the first king of Israel and the first king of Judah. They came to Ethiopia, part of the Beta Israel story. Uh, well, it's actually part of the contemporary Beta Israel story. It wasn't necessarily their, their earlier story. So it gives you these options. And these options are keys into a structure, and the structure makes you an heir to biblical promises. But you can also personalize what those biblical promises mean because you are part of Israel, not all of Israel. You can explain how you're a better Israel. You can explain how you're a more worthy Israel and still preserve the idea that you're Israel, but in a way that's unique. Maybe in some way this idea of the 12 tribes replaces polytheism in the sense that when you have a polytheistic society, you say, oh, there's one God, but there are all these other gods that are kind of lower gods, and we might be more connected to this one rather than this one. And when you go from polytheism to monotheism, you lose something. And you know, I also think about how people talk. I think this is true. I mean, people talk about how the saints in Catholicism were the translation of the the many gods. They couldn't have many gods anymore, but many of those characteristics became the characteristics of the saints. So maybe there's some human need to be able to connect to a collective without having to sign on the dotted line for the whole the whole everything. You know, is that is that part of it? That is a big part of it, that people have this urge to connect to the great myth systems, to the great promises, to the great whatever, to be part of tradition. But not everyone can do it the same way. Not everyone wants to do it in the same way. So the more ways you have to connect, the more personalizable it is. You know, this is like literally how it worked in the ancient Near East is that most places, so there was Mesopotamian polytheism, but most places had one God that was kind of their God, and that allowed them to sort of personalize their urban mythos, even in the context of Mesopotamia, but also in a way other people can recognize, because they also believe in polytheism too. They're also, you know, into this pantheon. Uh, one of the big ways that you, you see this in, in recent scholarship is when it comes to the Trojan War, which is, I think, the most similar phenomenon to what I'm describing, but not a recent phenomenon. So many, many ancient places and also many medieval places 
claimed descent from the heroes of the Trojan War. That happens in ancient Greece, but it also happens in ancient Rome. Uh, the Aeneid, which was the founding myth of Rome, once the empire began, claims descent from Aeneas, who was a Trojan hero. You also see it in the medieval period, the Merovingian dynasty, the uh, Normans, a bunch of other people also claim descent. So here's a story that gives whoever claims it a certain amount of authority or recognized authority because everybody already knows the Bible or the Iliad or Noah's Ark is another big one, but it lets them do it in a way that is personalizable. You get to connect to one of the most authoritative, most famous, most beloved traditions in the world, but you don't have to do it the way everybody else does. Do you think that the myth of the 12 tribes was successful because it tapped into this yearning, or do you think it was designed intentionally to tap into this yearning? Great question. And this is one of the big debates in identity. In general, when people talk about ethnicity and identity, they talk about, is it primordial, which is this idea that it is based on biological descent, or is it instrumental, which is that people are using it. They're using it self-consciously to try to claim stuff that otherwise they wouldn't get. They're using it on purpose. And the problem is that while we know that ethnicity is not really attached to biological descent in the way we used to think, you really can't catch anybody doing it on purpose. You know, it's very hard to see someone saying, I'm going to lie to people about being Israelite to get stuff. It's a people puzzle it over all, puzzle over it all the time, how it's possible that identity can be at once invented without finding any uh, inventors who are doing it on purpose. But it just seems to be how it is. I am thrilled to have the chance to do something that I didn't expect, which is you mentioned that you didn't know anybody who like consciously lied about a 12 tribes narrative. I am proud to introduce that I, Lex Rofberg, at my summer camp, consciously made up a story about the 12 tribes, and I want to explain why. So context for this story that matters. All of the cabins at my summer camp, it's a Jewish summer camp, are named after well, initially, the, the oldest cabins were all named after the, 12, after the 12 tribes. And importantly for this story, um, Dina, who is a sibling of the what would become the 12 tribes, but she's not understood as a tribe. And so I was the counselor for cabin Izahar, which is one of the tribes. And I found out a week and a half into our session that we were about to adopt a bunch of the two-weekers from a different cabin, Dina. They were going to join our cabin, and we had previously been like rivals. So Dina and Izahar, because they were the same age group, they were both young, like, I don't know, sixth graders. And one was the two-week sixth graders, and one was the four-week sixth graders. So they had little competitions against each other. And so now I'm in the position as a counselor where a bunch of people that you had, not like a violent rivalry, but like a fake rivalry with, are now joining our team. And so I had to like manufacture a sense of, of, of shared identity. And so I actually, I went and like dug into the 12 tribes and I was like, oh, Dina's mom is Leia and Izahar's mom is Leia. They, they share a mom. Not, not only are they siblings, they're actually full siblings. A lot of the tribes are only half siblings. And I literally made up a story of the tribe of Dinahar, which was, you know, the, the connection of Dina and Izahar. I made up a bunch of lore. We went to the campfire site and I like did all sorts of ridiculous like ritual and like threw wood chips in the air. Like it was a whole thing. But it seems like I was sort of following the lead of a lot of people historically. That's right. But what I was not doing was saying it was true. And so right. that, that, like that gets at what you were saying. Like what I love about your book is you don't spend a page or maybe even a paragraph on like whether 
this stuff is like whether the beta Israel's claims are true or whether the Mormon church is like, like that's not what your book's about. It's about given that they made these claims, sort of what were they doing and what does it show? And so I'm curious, given that I followed this example, what was I doing and what does it show? The first thing that it shows is why segmented identity systems are so useful for creating new visions of identity, because sort of incidentally, it creates a lot of information that you can draw on when you want to create new reality. So you're talking about how it turns out. So Dina is uh, one of Jacob's children. He had 12 sons and one daughter. And you found a connection that already existed between Dina and Issachar on the level of Leah. Leah is one of the four women who have children who are among the 12 tribes of Israel. So the, the first thing that it shows is that you didn't invent the detail. You reinterpreted the detail. And that happens all the time. One example that I often talk about is the Persian Wars in ancient Greece. What happens is that during the Persian War in the early 5th century, you have Spartans and Athenians who are saying, we're all Greeks, we're going to fight the Persians together. And then within 50 years, they're fighting each other in the Peloponnesian War. And they're saying, the Athenians are saying, all right, but we're descended from Ion. And the Spartans are saying, we're descended from Dorian, Doros. So we're Dorians and you're Ionians. And now we're going to fight for that reason. Helen is an ancestor of Ion and Doros. So they're just choosing which one they want to emphasize in a way that reflects the geopolitical realities. And that's what you were doing. You're saying now we are fusing with these this other group. We do have genealogical information that would grease the wheels of this. And, you know, actually, I am sure that there are individuals intentionally doing what you did. They're going to tell a story about how Ionians are better than Dorians and Dorians are better than Ionians because they're in a war. That's what they're doing. They're going to tell a story about how Ephraim is better than Judah or vice versa. But then it becomes believed by people who believe it because they think it's true, just like your tribes and your cabin. You know, they thought you were telling them a true story. I, you know, I've been there. I was in B'nai B'rith uh, Youth Organization as a young man, and I was in a chapter that we lost most of our members from one year to the next. They went and did other stuff, and we really wanted to build up uh, our membership. So the next year, we got a new crew, and we made up a tradition of going to a pizza place once a month. We said we've been doing it for years. <laughs> and people showed up because it was the tradition, even though we just invented it. But the point is, as long as they don't know it's the tradition, they just believe that that's what their identity is. They believe that they really belong. And the data, the information that allows people to make those claims usually already exists in the traditions that get handed down. They're just reinterpreted differently. So um, first off, that's super cool that you made up that BBYO tradition. Um, the, the question I have gets... Once again, to what Dan was asking before about sort of what you're responding to and what other scholars are doing when they're exploring questions about the Bible. And I found part of your book really compelling about sort of two groups of people that you're responding to who look at questions related to, I mean, related to the 12 tribes particularly, but also who are just sort of exploring the Bible generally. And I'm, I'm being careful not to say which questions because they're asking different questions. But you talk about, I think it's the, the preservationists and the cultural invention paradigm. And I think the way you did so is a really good window for people who don't know much about how people study the Bible generally. And then, of course, you go about sort of I'm sure you wouldn't use the word slamming, but you go you go about saying that there's a third way that you endorse that's different from those two ways. And so I'm curious to hear that sort of out loud in addition to what you talk about in the book. 
Yeah, so this is uh, this is in chapter one, and to me, this is the sort of so I was really trying to write a book that didn't just appeal to scholars and didn't just appeal to Hebrew Bible scholars, um, because but because it is a little bit scholarly. There there are places where I have to do some homework that I hope still interests people, but getting in the weeds a bit with scholarly debates. Well, before I started this book, the thing that I could tell you the most as a Hebrew Bible scholar is that there are these two methods of interpreting the Bible's many traditions about the 12 tribes of Israel. Most people are in what I, what I call the preservative paradigm, which means they are most interested in what details are preserved in these descriptions of tribal Israel that actually reflect the early realities of tribal Israel. And in recent years, there's a new paradigm, which is the one that we were talking about a little bit earlier, which is this idea that maybe actually the Judahites appropriated an Israelite identity at a later point. So there are a bunch of tribalists in the Hebrew Bible. One group looks at them as a source of information about early Israel, if they can figure out how to get it. One looks at it as proof that the Judahites invented a 12 tribes tradition. The problem is that there are roughly 26 different lists of the 12 tribes of Israel in the Hebrew Bible. So my beef is that you don't just have to explain where this idea came from. You have to explain what people are doing with this tradition. Why write 26 different tribal lists? Why is it that Genesis 49 has a tribal list and then Exodus 1 is like, oh, by the way, here are the 12 tribes of Israel, like we would have forgotten from two chapters ago. Why are there six or seven tribal lists in the book of Numbers alone? And it's so hard to imagine where these all came from. The existing explanations are insufficient. Nobody is going to write 20-ish different late tribal lists just to describe early realities. And if the concept, the 12 tribes concept, was invented by Judaites to describe themselves as Israelites, it's still the case that you have to explain why so many different Judaites wanted to use this tradition in different ways. And so one of the problems with the cultural invention mode is that actually it's based on an older understanding of cultural invention itself, which is an idea that goes back to Eric Hobsbawm and Eric Hobsbawm and is a well-known scholarly idea in scholarly circles and probably nowhere else. Uh, that is, the, you know, there are invented traditions and there are genuine traditions. But for the same reason, we have trouble talking about identity as being biologically real in the way we used to. It's actually very hard to say what the genuine traditions are as opposed to the invented ones, because they always get reinvented over time. So once you realize whether the 12 tribes tradition is based on a historical reality or not, whether the Judahites invented it or not, you still have to talk about uh, the redescriptive mode is what I called it. You still have to talk about how, how and why so many different Judaite authors redescribe this same tradition over and over again to create this incredibly large corpus of relatively late Judaite tribal lists. And that is what puts them in conversation with everybody else's efforts to redescribe Israel through the exact same tradition. One thing that struck me in, in some of how you were writing about this was that these choices, these redescriptive moments come a long, long time after the thing in question is gone. So Israel was destroyed a century or more before these lists that you're talking about. It actually, you can respond to this or, or not. You know, I like to lead scholars into speculations beyond what they're actually doing. But when I was reading, I, I was thinking about the Merneptah Stella, which talks about Israel having been destroyed. Merneptah is a 
a pharaoh, an Egyptian king, and he uh, talks about having utterly destroyed Israel such that his seed is no more. And a lot of people read that and they say, well, obviously he was mistaken because Israel wasn't destroyed. I'm not sure exactly what the date is, but the Merneptah Stella is pretty old. I, uh, I think a few centuries before the United Kingdom would have been. And perhaps the original Israel actually was destroyed. Actually, in the Merneptah Stella, the Israel is not a nation. It's really just a family, I think. And, and so maybe that was destroyed. And for some reason, later, the polity that we later called Israel somehow chose that figure or that identity to say, well, you know, maybe it's a compromise. Maybe we can all agree that we are sons of this no longer around Israel, something like that. And, and so I guess the question that I'm asking is whether the idea that we can connect ourselves to a people that no longer really exists is part of the appeal, maybe because they can't tell us that we're not. I think there's a lot to that. So, yeah, so you mentioned the Merneptah Stella, which is a tremendously important artifact. It is actually the first artifact in world history to mention the name Israel. It's probably from about 1207, 1208 BC. And like you said, in uh, hieroglyphic, you often have uh, what we're called determinants that tell you what a proper noun is. They could say that Israel, they could use a symbol that means that Israel is a great civilization or a town or a nation. They don't. They use a determinant that means they're people, which typically implies that they're not that well organized. Uh, and as you say, Merneptah says he destroys them. So it's this sort of irony where the earliest thing that mentioned Israel is something that says it's destroyed. So what I would say is that this raid presumably changed Israelite identity in some way, however disruptive it was. If it killed a lot of people or reorganized society, that's one thing. But even if it was just a small, you know, Merneptah was just bragging, it certainly had an effect. And it could have been something that, you know, one of the things we don't know, we know that a lot of different people were in this early sort of pre-monarchical community. Maybe Israel was just a small part of it, and then it became the name of all of the people who lived there. And I think to, to answer the, the larger question, which is related to this, why people want to become Israel, there is an ancient answer, and there is a more modern answer. Originally, the Hebrew Bible was not a bestseller. Obviously, this tradition became popular. Uh, because of Christianity, when Christianity became a world religion, originally it was just uh, in the traditions of the small Iron Age kingdom. In that kingdom, when Israel was conquered in 722 BC, uh, we know that Judah got bigger at that time. I think it's relatively likely there were a number of Israelite refugees in, in Judah. And I think becoming Israel was a method to sort of lay claim to Israel's territory. Uh, Israel was always the bigger king, kingdom. It was probably to lay claim to the prestige of Israel. But once we get to chapter three, once we start talking about the medieval period, there's what Israel means as the chosen people of the Hebrew Bible, even to Christians. Then becoming Israel means becoming an heir to the sort of promise that Israel is God's chosen possession. And you see that throughout biblical prophecy. So the benefits of being Israel change over time. In ancient Israel and Judah, it's about territory. It's about prestige, maybe about, you know, the leadership of certain Israelite and Judaic groups that still live in this region after the imperial assault. And then it becomes uh, what we know it to be in the Hebrew Bible, which is about chosenness and the end of the world, you know, being the people of the Bible. And there's a lot in that. 
So I have I have a number of questions, but they boil down to like, what does a, a lay person who's not in the scholarly world like? What what might they learn from this book, or what what might shift about how they approach either the Bible or their life? Yeah. That's kind of where this will go. But I have some things to say in between. Um, for me, what's so important about this book is that people who are identifying themselves as Israel in any sort of way often aren't aware of the many different visions of Israel that are out there. But I actually think there's something really exciting that happens when I read a book that places in one story a people I consider myself part of, which is to say Jews, um, Mormons. Um, I don't know if beautiful is the right word. There's something nice and like, oh, wow, there's something that Mormons are doing and that I'm doing. That is a shared muscle. That that's cool. And then also Beta Israel, like they are taking on a similar effort to what I have done in ascribing meaning to this family in the Book of Genesis. To me, that's cool. There's a universalism at play here, where like I'm connecting myself to a bunch of people through something I actually thought was a particularist thing. Like I I, I thought of Israel claiming or becoming Israel as something that my group of people does. But when it's something that a lot of groups of people do, some might take that as like making it less cool. I take it as making it more cool, personally. I also note that there's something that is being done here that I actually really want people to do as like a practitioner of Judaism and as a rabbi, like something, I'm not asking you necessarily to, to weigh in on this part if you don't want to, but like, I want people to look at the tribes that aren't already filled with lots of meaning. Like, what could we make out of Naphtali or or Issachar, some of these tribes that are mentioned in the book of Genesis that don't have a lot of like heroes associated with them or famous legends? Like, what if we actually saw it as like our role to consciously create these new stories? I actually think that could be exciting um, within Jewish tradition or outside of it. So that's a lot of stuff. But basically, what should people or what could people take from your book as they're thinking just about how to apply it to their own lens on the world or on their religion. So uh, what I would say is that we have this obsession with historical reality, but when it comes to identity, historical reality doesn't get you very far. So like I say, I sort of start with the position that even if there was a 12 tribes of Israel, even if the Judites and Israelites are legitimately biologically descended from them, you still have to ask what are people hundreds of years later in a totally different world doing with these traditions to make them meaningful to them. And as much as it seems like a gut level instinct to think that some people are really Israelites, to take an example, but really anything, and some people aren't. And as much as people think that if you are biologically descended from an identity group, you are that identity group. The fact of the matter is we are constantly reinventing who we are modifying our traditions to fit new realities, responding to new challenges through them. So actually, all traditions of identity form a vocabulary that we are all constantly using in new ways. So what the book is doing is pointing to the fact that this particular vocabulary, the 12 tribes tradition, is incredibly popular. It is a lingua franca among people spread throughout the entire world and over the course of the last 3,000 years. And I think there is something beautiful in saying that here are all these groups that have found so much meaning in this language who are speaking the same tongue, even if they have different idioms, even if they have different turns of phrase, even if they want them to mean 
different things. And there's a danger here. And I, you know, I talk about it in the book and it's, it's very important that I, that I just say it, which is that the problem is that there are lots of uh, minority groups, oppressed groups who get what little rights they have by virtue of this sort of widespread agreement that identity entitles you to some things if you really have it. I think about the Beta Israel a lot, the Samaritans, if I'm saying that it's not that these are invented, it's that identity is kind of always somewhat invented, no matter how based on biological descent it is. You know, is that actually going to hurt people in the present who rely on the acceptance of their identity claims to get the rights that they deserve? And just to, just to really clarify that, you're referring to like literal rights or non-rights in the state of Israel, in the, like, right. which has had like court cases deciding whether these groups count, quote unquote. That's right. So over the course of the last uh, you know four or five decades, the Samaritans have gained and lost the right of return. It's basically been arbitrated in the court system on the basis of whether we think they're really Israelites or not. These questions of identity have real world dangers that I want to acknowledge. But from an intellectual standpoint, there's no way around recognizing that uh, identity is a playground that we're all playing in. It is a vocabulary that we're all speaking. And the fact that we inherit the words from our ancestors doesn't mean that we aren't all ourselves saying what we need to say in a given context. And so you're looking at all these groups who are speaking the same language. You're looking at all these groups who have found meaning in the same traditions. And I think it is very meaningful that there is something there that, that can make a lot of connections. As you probably know, today in Africa, there's a, a number of groups who want to be identified officially in Israel as Jewish, who have been consistently turned out. They want to live Jewish lives. They are living Jewish lives. And I think loosening our grip on what identity is opens the door for people who deserve to belong to. Being a little less serious, recognizing uh, that identity is a little invented, even if it's also real, should make us more inclusive. Yeah, I, I love that phrase, loosening the grip on, I think you said loosening the grip on identity or loosening the grip on how we understand identity. And I know just to to synthesize for a second with just how we, how we through the flow of our podcast, think about a lot of related questions. I, I think that your book is a really important piece of a broader puzzle, which for me, I would boil down. I mean, I sometimes talk about it as like roads not taken, but that's not quite right because these actually are roads that have been taken by different But when I, when I say roads not taken, I'm referring to like really rich forms of Judaism or some of them have been called Judaism. Others of them have been called different things, but forms of practice by Jews that are not predominating today. So we've talked in the past about Karaite Judaism, and we've talked, uh, um, and and you mentioned today Samaritans. But suffice to say, the Judaism that we call Judaism now, most people call Judaism now, is not the whole story even now. But it's certainly not the whole story historically across centuries and millennia. And so to read a book that is saying, wow, look at all of these claims that people have made to Israel, it helps us see like, oh. That's a thing I'm doing. I'm I'm claiming that I'm part of Israel. And other people are doing that claiming too. And, you know, I actually have to I'm somebody as a white Jew who descends from Eastern Europe who does not have to spend much of my life proving to anyone. I'm not asked to show or demonstrate that I'm really quote unquote Jewish very much. A lot of other people are. 
and there's court cases about it, like you described. And yeah. but by the way, that's in Israel. There's, this is happening in our own locale in the United States and in other areas of the world too. There's all sorts of boundary policing that happens, and if we realize that the boundaries have been created by choices and are not because most of the people that are listening to this podcast, there are other podcasts, but most people listening to this podcast don't think that these are ordained, that that the books we're talking about, the Bible, are sort of ordained by God and capital T true in the sense that all the dictates are to be followed. Like most of us don't really think that, but we still, without thinking about it, sort of abide by the idea that they are true in all sorts of ways, including that we wouldn't mess around with some new claims to Israel. But I guess what I would close by asking is on a on a personal level or for communities, how might the knowledge of your book be mobilized towards a broader conception of who quote unquote counts or whether counting matters? And not just in Israel, but even like in American Jewish communities or otherwise. Yeah. So let me let me uh, say two things. Uh, so the first thing is here's an issue that the both you and I, uh, that matters a lot to both you and I, uh, which is intermarriage. You know, um, my wife was born Christian. I am the father of a 10 month son. She hasn't converted. She's not active religiously. Uh, we want to raise our son Jewish. And because traditionally the uh, mother being Jewish is what decides if somebody is Jewish or not, he may face some questions in his life about whether he's Jewish, provided he wants to be Jewish, you know, when he gets to be the age of choosing that kind of thing. That doesn't make any sense. My great-grandfather's name is on the cornerstone of the Orthodox synagogue in Dallas. He came here in the 1890s. I am a professor of the Hebrew Bible. So if the question is, is my son in a position to learn about not just his traditions, but the texts, he's better positioned than most people. So if he wants to be Jewish, how senseless is it to deny to him the right to be Jewish uh, because of some rule that exists in large part because of a fear of adultery, as near as I can tell. So that's one way to put it. Another way is, you know, I talk a lot in the, the last chapter of the book about the Beta Israel and the Samaritans, because they have both faced a lot of court cases in Israel about their Jewish identity. But since the 1970s, no court case has reversed the access of the Beta Israel to the right of return, and the Samaritans have had some that reversed their access. And the irony there is that the Samaritans, you know, it is very likely the Samaritans really are the ends, the descendants of the ancient Israelites, not the ancient Judites. So maybe even more so than, than Jews, they have this right. The problem is that contemporary Jewish identity is constructed with the belief that Jewish equals Israelite, just like all these other Israels in the world don't understand themselves as the descendants of Israel, they understand themselves as Israel. So the framing that enabled the Beta Israel come to Israel is actually discriminatory. It's that they are pre-Talmudic Jews who need to be taught Jewish practices, but at least have the descent going for them. So that's very condescending, and that's actually been very harmful to the Beta Israel community in their time in Israel, that they're treated as Jews, but Jews who have to learn from other Jews how to be Jews. Meanwhile, the Samaritans don't get access sometimes to those same rights because they are officially, and in their own traditions, non-Jewish Israelites, and those are not supposed to exist. So one is discriminatory, one is exclusionary. And if we just said that the Samaritans, for example, are biologically descended from the Israelites, just like the Jewish people, but they develop differently over time, 
what would be the problem with it? But that's not an option that is available from the thought system that produces, you know, Jews equal Israelites. Therefore, if you're a non-Jewish Israelite, you can't really exist. And what would be the problem in saying that the Beta Israel are a Jewish group that has their own customs that are different from our customs, but just as deserving respect? And once you start doing that, that's when you can say, look at these African communities that want to be recorded in Israel as Jewish. Look at these other communities around the world. Uh, you mentioned the Karaites. You mentioned some other ones who are part of this story, but have often had a liminal status in Judaism. If we can recognize the imagined character of how we construct our connection to the past, even if it's biologically there, it can threaten the rights of people who only have rights because of their descent, but it should also open the door to allowing other people who have believed in those traditions as much, committed to them as much, want to be part of it as much, to be part of our community as they deserve to be. I'm impressed that as a father, your argument wasn't just that your son is super adorable, because I've seen I've seen you post photos and like we should welcome adorable to the Judah. Jewish people. Um, his name is Judah. His name yeah. is Judah, which is hard in the classroom because I'm always like, you know, then Judah was conquered by the Babylonians, and I'm like, oh no. <laughs> But he's, you know, the costume he's named after my grandmother, June. Yeah. So. There you go. Cool. Oh, well, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a fantastic conversation. I really appreciate talking to you guys. Thanks so much for having me. And, uh, you know, I hope that anyone who, who gets the book enjoys at least something of, of what I have to say. I'm sure it'll start some arguments. Yes, we love books that start Jewish arguments. What would our podcast be if we didn't have various books across history that have provoked arguments from the Torah right on down? So thanks to Andrew Tobolowsky for continuing that tradition and supporting our podcast in a sense. Uh, and thanks to all of you out there for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this conversation and we hope that you'll tune in in the future. Um, two notes before we close. One is that Shavuot! An amazing holiday. One of our favorite holidays at Judaism Unbound is coming up. It's on June 4th and 5th. That's a Saturday and a Sunday this year. So uh, hold that weekend. We've got our Shavuot Live digital learning extravaganza coming back 24 hours straight of Jewish learning. And you can sign up for it now. You can head to bit.ly slash Shavuot2022, or you can just head to JudaismUnbound.com and find the links to Shavuot Live. Um, we're really excited to have that event coming back this year, and we hope that you will come for part of it or all of it if you're super ambitious, 24 hours straight. But yeah, that's available and coming up soon. A second note, we really encourage you to purchase Andrew Tobolowsky's book, and uh, you can find a link to do so in the show notes to this episode on our website. And uh, if you use that link, if you go to the Cambridge University Press site, you can utilize a discount code that'll get you 20% off. And that discount code is TMTTI2022. I'll say it again, TMTTI2022. Plug that in at the checkout on the Cambridge Press site and you'll get 20% off this book. We hope that you will use that amazing discount code. So with that, we're going to close out our episode. We hope that you'll be in touch with us. There's our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages. All of those are at Judaism Unbound. There's our website, JudaismUnbound.com. And there's our email addresses, Dan at JudaismUnbound.com or Lex at JudaismUnbound.com. The last request we'd like to make is that we deeply appreciate any amount of financial donation that you can send our way, which you can do via JudaismUnbound.com slash donate on either a monthly recurring basis or just as a one-time gift. But uh, with that, this has been Judaism Unbound. <laughs>